the early 19th century, China was virtually the only place tea was grown. The drug was illegal in China, though the ban was widely ignored. The authorities there called it a deadly poison ruining the minds and morals of our people. The British grew opium poppies in India. There they processed it in factories on a colossal scale. Finally, it was shipped to China and sold to smugglers. With the profits, British traders bought Chinese tea. The British East India Company, quote, cultivated this opium for no other purpose than for smuggling it into China against the laws and edicts of the empire. And, as had been truly said, of poisoning the health and destroying the morals of the people of that country. End quote. That came to us from James Buckingham, who was a champion of the free press in India, who represented the industrial borough of Sheffield in the House of Commons, according to Stephen Platt's book, Imperial Twilight. At its peak towards the end of the 19th century, opium accounted for 16% of revenue from British India. Opium poppies or raw opium were economically crucial for the British, not just because of the revenue they brought in. The opium was sold to traders and was frequently destined for China. The sale of opium provided the silver to buy the tea the British so intensely desired. China, in turn, experienced the worst levels of addiction recorded in history, with some accounts calculating that up to one in five young adult males being addicted around 1900. It's easy to assume that in this context, the British government was wholeheartedly supportive of the opium trade. Those behind the trade clearly dominated in the 1800s, but it's important to note that resistance to the opium trade had existed throughout the century. This was the case to some degree in all European countries with Asian colonies. Opium proved to be quite the hard drug to kick for governments that began to rely on it financially. While it would take some governments like the French a few decades beyond World War II to totally kick the habit, the actions of all of the governments that took part in producing and distributing opiates in the 1900s laid the foundation for modern drug markets. The Dutch, then the British, increased their control of opium supply chains from the 16th through the 1800s. Other governments, ranging from the American, the German, the Japanese, would eventually get in on the opium trade and, in turn, supported the growth of the user base of opiates in Asia and elsewhere. In the context of opium and its derivatives, the 19th century was one rife with scientific advances and massive profiteering without really any regard for the human toll. To quote David Courtright, the global circulation of addictive commodities such as alcohol, tobacco, caffeine-containing plants, opium, and coca leaves was intentionally promoted on the basis of profit-making. It not only changed billions of people's everyday life, but also affected the environment." End quote. Hello, and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal, and this season we're covering the history of opium. This is the second of two episodes on opium as a commodity. Today we're going to start with the growing presence of the British in Asia and their role in the opium trade. As part of that, we'll get into the opium wars at a very high level, and we'll finish the episode with an overview of opium markets as we get closer to 1900. We're going to briefly touch on the role of some governments beyond the British, but I do want to note that by the second half of the 1800s, many Western governments or companies, including American ones, were involved in the trade. I'm mainly focusing on the British as they were the biggest player in the market at the time, 
but I just want to make sure that me focusing on the British doesn't imply that they were the only ones packing in that foundation of the drug markets that we'll explore in future episodes. With that, let's start with the British East India Company. The British East India Company, or EIC for short, was officially started at the end of 1600 when Queen Elizabeth signed a document establishing it. The creation of the EIC involved a £69,000 investment at the time, which was the first private stock offering. This offering gave the rights of those who held the stock to trade in certain countries. By contrast, the Dutch East India Company, or VOC, became the first publicly traded company. The EIC was granted a monopoly over trade, and its first venture was out to Indonesia, something that the Dutch weren't thrilled about given that they were already there. The English romance with tea really began after 1664 when King Charles II received some as a gift. Soon after that, 12 million pounds of tea leaves were arriving in England. Though the first EIC tea house opened in London in 1647, Twinning Tea, which is a brand that some may recognize today, was set up by 1706. And tea was a really high-class kind of thing at first, but eventually it did spread out to all of Britain. I know it might seem a bit silly now, but tea really was a big deal. The demand got so high that traders were going to have trouble filling it in future years. If we jump ahead, from 1834 to 1835, the amount of tea exported from China went from 33.6 million pounds to 44.3 million pounds, of which 30 million were loaded by Jardine Matheson. Suffice it to say they were one of the biggest traders at the time, and they were quite influential in Hong Kong. By 1844, exports of tea grew to 70 million pounds. And as the trade of tea and other goods expanded, especially as we get closer to the Opium War, the opium trade also expanded greatly. The EIC was able to secure opium trading rights in certain parts of India in 1617, and already by 1613 they had established a warehouse or factory on the coast of Gujarat in India, predating getting the actual rights. While the British were starting to build a supply chain of Indian opium, Turkish opium was still easier to get, and Egyptian opium was still considered to be the finest. Some opium in the West was also sourced from Iran, but it did not seem to be a significant amount. However, the European market, just to note, would never really become reliant on the Indian opium. In the Canton region in China, which is modern-day Guangzhou, the guild system that was popular there enabled corruption and bribery. Chinese merchants, in groups called Hongs, formed a trade monopoly. And these Hongs controlled all of the goods going into and out of Canton, which was the only place where foreigners were allowed to sell their goods into China. And not only did the Hongs control the trade, but intermediaries were additionally used between the Hongs and the Europeans. In the early 1700s, the EIC had some working for them learn Chinese in order to start working directly with the Hongs. And here, by some, I mean, it seems as though the EIC had two people officially working for the organization in the 18th century who learned Chinese, and then there were a few other individuals who would learn the language and go on to work for other European governments once in Canton. The money flowing into China, coupled with a stable dynasty, helped fuel an overall population increase there. The growth in population, combined with the increasing usage of opium, led to initial restrictions in 1729. The restrictions that were put in place by the Chinese emperor did not have much effect, though, and opium was still being smuggled in quite readily. 
British and other smugglers were defying the Chinese desires and bringing opium into the country illegally. Interestingly, even after the edicts against opium were put in place, opium poppy cultivation in China would soon start to rise. Specifically, in western Yunnan, near Burma's Kokong region, poppy farming was starting to lightly pick up around 1736 and would later grow rapidly after the 1840s as we approach the Opium War and go through the first part of it. It's important to note that by the late 18th century, the British East India Company was making a huge portion of its revenue from tea, which itself was financed by opium. In parallel to the British and other smugglers bringing opium into China in the mid-1700s, the British were expanding their control in India. There are a lot of potential military campaigns to cover here, and we could even get into things like the French East India Company and the Carnatic Wars, but I'm going to focus on the Battle of Plassey in 1757 to give a sense of how things changed in the region to the mid to late 18th century. So in June of 1756, a young ruler with the title of Nawab of Bengal, named Suraj Ud Daula, as always, apologies for butchering names, and this Nawab managed to take Calcutta from the EIC with the help of a huge army. Some British prisoners were captured and put into a cell that became known as the Black Hole, where a large percentage of the British prisoners died due to the heat and conditions. It's unclear whether or not this was sanctioned by the Nawab, but it did strike a chord with the British. Regardless, Robert Clive would take off for Calcutta with a force of 2,500 men in August of that year, and by January the following year, he would retake the fort already. But let's go into the details a bit more. I want to take a moment to note that when I say 2,500 men on the side of the British, I don't mean that there were that many British soldiers. In fact, when Clive would go on to Plassey, 2,000 of the 2,500 plus men were actually Indian sepoys. Sepoy was a name given to Indians working for European forces, according to Merriam-Webster. I think it makes more sense to think of a sepoy as a professional Indian mercenary more so than specific someone working for the Europeans. The origins of the term came from the infantrymen who were armed with a musket in the army of the Mughal Empire. Nawabs would also have sepoys working for them, so it's not as simple as though a sepoy was purely an Indian soldier working for a European army. Anyway, after Calcutta was retaken by the British, Clive started planning to replace Siraj with a Nawab whose intentions were more aligned with the EIC. He found exactly that in Mir Jafar, who was offered both bribes and Siraj's position if he acted favorably towards the British in the coming weeks. Siraj suspected something was happening, so he moved south to Plassey. Clive actually moved north on June 13th with over 2,500 soldiers, of whom the 2,000 were sepoys, as well as some artillery men and two howitzers. On June 21st, Clive summoned a council of war to decide their action. And after some heated debate, Clive apparently went to meditate in a grove for an hour, after which he gave orders to go ahead and move on Plassey. Clive and his men were up against a force of roughly 40,000 men, more than 50 cannons, and even war elephants. With a stroke of luck for the British, heavy rainfall started at noon on the day of the confrontation. While the British troops were able to cover their artillery with tarps in time, Siraj's forces didn't do so, leaving them without their cannons. Thinking the same fate had befallen Clive's men, Siraj's troops surged forward only to be met with heavy fire. Siraj also distrusted his other troops, and after Mir Jafar suggested a retreat, Siraj fled on a fast camel and was later killed by his own people. 
and so Mir Jafar would replace Siraj's Nawab of Bengal, cementing the British control of the area. This also meant that Clive had control of India's cheapest and best opium. And beyond this battle, Robert Clive played an integral role in expanding the British presence in India and in turn growing the strength of the British Empire. As a result of this, Clive also helped grow the opium trade in relation to the tea trade. The opium from India was sold into China in order to buy tea and other goods to send back to Europe, given that the Chinese didn't really have much interest in the British goods. The government back in Britain was already trying to limit the EIC monopoly, however the amount of money they earned made it really challenging to curtail their power. Clive's efforts in India made him tremendously wealthy. This was partially due to the fact that he helped place the EIC in control of most of the opium-growing land across four regions. By the late 18th century, opium had been prepared in government factories that were overseen by the EIC. The old paintings of these are actually pretty astounding. If you've ever been on the Twitter account of the podcast, at Drugs History, the banner of the podcast is exactly that. It's a large government-run opium facility. Starting with the 1760s, a deep distrust of the EIC started to develop on the side of the Indians. The trust was further eroded when the EIC ended up playing an integral role in the Bengal Famine of 1770. Within three years of that, the EIC went on to aggressively dominate the opium trade. And even so, around 1784, Americans had already 10% or so of the opium market into China, while Britain and their traders still retained roughly 60-80% of the trade. The Chinese were trying to make it more difficult for smugglers with another call for prohibition in 1799 from the Qing government. Warren Hastings also played an important role in the rise of the opium trade and the activities of British India overall. He ended up becoming the first Governor General of India from 1773 to 1785. The government was already seeing more issues with the opium trade, but again, the financial reliance on it made opium really tough to get away from. Hastings personally accepted that the EIC had tons of opium to sell and saw no issues with having private traders buying the EIC opium and bringing it into China or elsewhere across Asia. I didn't clarify this earlier, so to be more precise, it's not that the EIC was directly smuggling opium into China, but rather that the EIC sold the opium to traders who would then smuggle it on into China. And Hastings put an end to all of this charade and started sending some ships directly to China. This was the last straw for some British politicians who thought that the opium trade was a disgrace. And Hastings ended up being charged with high crimes and misdemeanors, but was found innocent in the end. The list of all of the charges against Hastings took a full two days to read. Even while the flow of opium into China was still mainly being sourced from India, the flow into Java was actually coming from Turkey or Persia, as well as British Bengal, into the early parts of the 19th century. Most of the opium in the area was coming through the Dutch merchants or auctions in Calcutta or agency houses in British Singapore. This highlights that though the very high-level national involvement changed over centuries, Traders and smugglers from countries such as the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, Britain, America, and others would end up remaining active regardless of the laws. The changes that took place so far would really pale in comparison to the influx of opium that was coming. By 1818, opium had officially accounted for 10% of China's total imports. Just 15 years later, opium would make up 54% of all imports. 
to give you a sense of the actual numbers, that means from 1818 through 1833, the total imports of opium went from roughly $1.6 million to just over $12 million. During that 15-year period, opium had made up roughly a third of total imports into China. Until the late 1700s, the tea trade had been pretty profitable. However, when Spain entered the American War of Independence, the silver market was cut off until 1785 or so. Compounded with the competition from other sources of opium within India, this was really starting to add financial pressure to the British. The monopoly they established after the Battle of Plassey had led to greater revenue for the British government, but it also led to an increase in smuggling as well. While in 1720, roughly 15 tons were being smuggled, by 1773, that number rose to 75 tons. After 1800, that would rise to 250 tons, and by 1840, that number exploded to 2,500 tons. Again, just showcasing just how much opium imports would increase in the 1800s. The existence of British monopolies wasn't the only pressure leading to more smuggling. The process for trade with China involved going to Macau to get a permit, paying a tax, and getting a local guide. While custom houses were monitored, the waters were really tough to oversee. One person noted, quote, No wonder that smuggling in every form has been long carried out to such a notorious extent. The communications by water from one point to another, and in the interior of the country, are so numerous and so interwoven with each other that it would be impossible for any system of financial regulation which the Chinese could adopt to act efficiently against the complicated machinery of evasion which is so easily put into operation. As mentioned, Americans started getting involved in the opium trade just after the American Revolution. The country's role was quite limited as it didn't have its own silver until it started mining the Comstock Lode in Nevada in 1858. That, however, didn't stop a number of wealthier players to get involved through the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s, and making quite a pretty penny in the process. I'm thinking about doing a bonus episode on some companies and families that got rich off of opium in the US and the UK, and what institutions they ended up funding as a result. When exploring this part of the history of opium, I think it's interesting to cover some of the big names involved as they're quite recognizable, especially if you've ever been to Hong Kong or certain parts of Asia. William Jardine and James Matheson had formed Jardine Matheson, which was mentioned earlier and became prominent in the opium trade by the 1830s. As the Industrial Revolution back in Britain forced the dissolution of the EIC, its assets were divested and companies like Jardine Matheson stepped in to ship tea and opium. Some other companies included Dent & Co., American companies such as Russell & Co. and Perkins & Co., and six Indian companies were the main players in the trade. Jardine Matheson conducted up to a third of the trade into Canton leading up to the First Opium War. By the late 1830s, British merchants were selling roughly 1,400 tons of opium into China. Before we get into an overview of the Opium Wars, I really want to stress that I'm just flying by it, missing all of the specific battles, and only mentioning some high-level takeaways that are relevant for our journey. I think the Opium Wars are really worth delving into in more detail, especially if you want to have an important backdrop for modern Western Sino relations. I'll make sure to post some links to some resources so that you can explore in more depth if you choose to. At the start of the First Opium War, it was estimated that roughly 20% of government officials smoked opium. By 1839, China had already placed a man by the name of Lin Zexu in charge of dealing with the country's opium epidemic. 
the British Chief Superintendent of Trade destroyed 20,000 chests of opium to help relations. Though in the long run, it didn't really do much. Lin arrived in Canton in March 1839 and ordered to stop the trade of opium and ordered that opium must be handed over from all stores. Lin had the street around the Canton colony barricaded and blockaded the river. In Canton, there was a very specific part of town where all of the western companies were allowed to have their own little bases, so this is the part where he was barricading. To the displeasure of the local smokers, he also confiscated 70,000 opium pipes. Lin also got what amounted to an army of laborers to dig and line seven-foot-deep trenches that were 25 feet wide and 150 feet long. Some of these trenches would be filled with opium, and people would just watch it burn. Captain Charles Elliot began efforts on the British side, but things ended up leading to Lynn confiscating 3 million pounds of opium, and eventually the first official battle of the war came in November of 1839. The Treaty of Nanking was signed in 1842 with the intention of destroying the Canton system. The Chinese government was forced to pay 6 million silver dollars for destroyed opium, 3 million for accounts the Hong still had, and 12 million for the cost of the war. So just to reiterate, the Chinese were forced to pay for the opium that was illegally being smuggled into their country that they destroyed, and for the actual full cost of the war. Hong Kong went to the British, and the British also got access to Canton, Shanghai, and five other ports to the north. This ended the stronghold of the Hongs over trade into Canton that had been prevalent for centuries. The treaty also established more predictable duties on opium and other goods, making trade costs more consistent. New provisions were added the following year that ensured the British citizens were not tried by Chinese law and that England generally got the best prices and the lowest tariffs. Lin was actually exiled for his role at the start of the Opium War, but was later allowed to return. Despite the fact that the addictive elements of opium were much more well understood now, opium imports were up 20% from the start of the war. Historian Nicholas J. Saunders called the Opium War among the most immoral episodes in his country's history, concluding, quote, These conflicts saw the British Empire officially trafficking opium and using military might to force narcotic addiction on the people of China. During these years, Britain created the largest, most successful, and most lucrative drug cartel that the world had ever seen, end quote. The growth of Hong Kong was in part a result of the Opium War and the growth of trade that resulted from the increased British presence. Jardine Matheson purchased plots of land in modern Hong Kong in 1841 and moved their base there in 1844. Overall trade grew from 80,000 tons in 1847 to 1.35 million tons in 1867. HSBC, which stands for the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, was established in 1685 by Denton Co. to help provide credit on the island, and it actually ended up providing funding for a fair amount of opium trade activities around then as well. The Second Opium War would last from 1856 until 1860, with skirmishes breaking out in 1856 and Britain soon seizing Canton. The Treaty of Tianjin in 1860 ended the Second Opium War. Again, the Chinese were forced to pay for the war and ended up paying $8 million in silver to Britain and France. Foreign countries also got the right to build within Beijing and Shanghai too, and opium was fully legalized. Other countries were able to get similar concessions, and all of these were known as China as the Unequal Treaties. Part of the treaty conceded Kowloon in Hong Kong to the British, and very importantly, it made the opium trade legal. 
After the end of the Second Opium War, the amount of Chinese labor workers or indentured servants heading into the U.S. and other places increased. We're going to talk about this a little more in the next episode as we talk about opium as a drug, but we'll see that issues of addiction and in turn some of the initial regulations that came against opium usage would actually be focused on these Chinese communities that would travel to the U.S., Mexico, or other places. In addition to the British bringing Indian opium into China, American traders also brought in Turkish opium. The first foray of American trade into Asia was when the Empress of Philadelphia sailed from New York back in 1783. As a side note, that venture was actually funded by Robert Morris, who also funded the purchase of 80% of the bullets fired in the Revolutionary War. Warren Delano II would go on to make money from the need for opium in the U.S. during the Civil War. The U.S. clearly has its own fun history to unpack, but that will have to be for a bonus episode. And so after the Second Opium War, opium trade into China grew tremendously. In 1827, before the First Opium War, the foreign imports had increased to nearly 10,000 chests per year. Ten years later, in 1837, that rose to 40,000 chests. In 1857, the import total was 70,000 chests, and in 1881, it had reached 90,000 chests. Each of these chests was about 65 kilograms each, so a bit over 130 pounds. It wasn't until the early 1900s that China would start trying to more seriously reform the opium trade. It would probably be more fair to say it wasn't until the early 1900s that China had the chance to try and more seriously reform the opium trade, given how much pressure and how many blocks on that kind of progress were put in place by the British and other foreign governments. Also after the Second Opium War, the Chinese realized that they could grow opium at home and sell it more cheaply than the Indian or Turkish opium. Sichuan and Yunnan provinces were particularly popular for this growth. Between 1875 and 1885, opium was still the single largest item to be imported into China. For both PR and financial reasons, Jardine Matheson started getting out of the opium trade in the 1870s. On the production side, families such as the Sassoons started handling more of the production and export in India as the British slowly started scaling back. At the same time, Chinese merchants started handling more of the importing as Jardine Matheson was scaling it back. One Chinese company would buy the opium, another would organize its shipping, and a third would sell it there. Despite the fact that China was the majority of the global drug market, it wasn't the only place where opium was being sold. By 1852, 50,000 pounds of Middle Eastern opium was being sold in New York. As mentioned in previous episodes, there were some experiments of American opium being grown in the late 17 and early 1800s, but the towel was thrown in by 1898, citing a lack of cheap labor, according to Scientific American. Similar efforts arose within Britain, and a similar end of a lack of cheap labor led to an end of the attempt, especially given how cheap sea-based transport was. Turkish opium remained a quarter of the price of Western opium. Already by 1805, a quarter of imported Turkish opium into Britain was then exported into the U.S., between 1825 and 1850, imports to Britain rose from 23,000 kilograms to 138,000 kilograms, with a third of that still roughly being further exported to the U.S. The imports in the U.S. did slowly start coinciding with some of the issues with addiction that would arise later in the 19th century. But the real large numbers were the imports into China. 
In 1859, 51,000 chests were imported from India to China. By 1882, that rose to 112,000 chests. By 1888, the London Times estimated that 70% of adult Chinese males were habituated or addicted to opium, though these numbers were most likely inflated. Chinese populations across Southeast Asia rose, and the demand for opium followed. The same trend was witnessed with Chinese workers heading to Peru, California, or the Sandwich Islands. This labor migration really caused the opium trade to diffuse. 800 kilograms of opium were imported into Australia by 1890, which had been virtually opium-free in the mid-1800s. As the trade into China grew, the revenues for the British government grew in line with them. Not accounting for inflation, opium brought in, in British pounds, 750,000 in 1840 and 9.1 million pounds in 1878. The total revenue over that 39-year stretch was roughly 375 million pounds. So clearly, opium had played a huge role financially. In terms of where it was being cultivated, aside from India, the main areas of cultivation into the early 1900s were Turkey, Persia, China, Greece, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, and Egypt. Interestingly, packaging differed across countries as well. In Turkey, small cakes were wrapped in poppy leaves that were called Constantinople pats. In Persia, the packaging that was commonplace was generally having opium put into six-inch cylindrical sticks that were known as trebizons. And in China, these flat cakes were created uh, that were then wrapped with white paper and called yunnan for the region where they were being cultivated. The English opium production monopoly in India remained under the control of the government until 1920. At its peak around 1890, British government opium was one of the most profitable commodities moving internationally. Each year, more than 5,400 metric tons were being shipped from Calcutta to Bombay to meet the demand of the 13 or so million users in China and Southeast Asia. This amounted to approximately 16% of the total British Indian revenue. To give a sense of the extent of the production of opium internationally over time, by 1906, 41,624 tons of opium were produced worldwide. 85% of that was produced in China, just over 35,000 tons. 12% of the total, just over 5,000 tons, was produced in British India. According to Alfred McCoy, the global opium production would fall to just over 1,000 tons by 1970. Opium production would increase to roughly 3,400 tons by 1989, and once Afghanistan's production would start to grow, it would eventually reach 8,200 tons in 2007 and 10,000 tons in 2017. Places like Vietnam, Thailand, and Pakistan have decreased their production in recent decades, while Myanmar was overtaken by Afghanistan as the dominant producer in 1991. International conflicts have fueled the growth of opium over time, and the opium wars were a great example of that. In more recent times, the Cold War and the War on Terror have both led to considerable increases in opium production. Opium's role in society in the last two centuries has been at least partially built on war and has definitely contributed to human suffering given the way it was orchestrated. But the tides were beginning to change in terms of attitudes towards drugs. As we'll hear in the next episode, we're going to shift towards what we now think of as the Progressive Era, which led to international controls and laws against drug purchase or consumption in some form. One early sign of the change was also the sheer volume of opium produced in China. 
the trade we just covered laid the foundation for the opium markets that would soon become illegal. The so-called reforms of the progressive era would solidify that foundation, paving the way for criminal organizations to fill the role that governments or government-sanctioned entities had played from the 1600s through the early 1900s. As we look at opium as a drug, and as we discussed in the interview with Professor Carolyn Acker, the late 1800s and early 1900s would see a change in the West's relationship to opiates. To build up to that, we'll start the next episode with an exploration of the evolution of intoxication globally and the expansion of addiction in both the East and the West. We'll get into the first laws that went into the effect in the US and the kind of sentiments that were arising in relation to the opium trade internationally. And so I'll see you in about a month to start looking at opium not just as a commodity or as medicine, but in the context of a drug that people become addicted to. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is written and produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at DrugsHistory or over email, DrugsHistory at gmail.com. I'm going to add a link to a list of citations in the show notes as well. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon.